Our speaker today, uh, William M.S. Rasmussen, is a native of Richmond. Uh, he received his undergraduate degree from Washington and Lee University, and he's made good use of that uh, relationship ever since, as Washington and Lee is indeed one of our partners uh, for the exhibition this year. He received both the Master of Arts degree and the PhD in Art History uh, from the University of Delaware. Since 1991, uh, Bill Rasmussen has been the Laura Robbins Curator here at the Virginia Historical Society. And I regard it as one of my uh, great achievements uh, in coming to the Society in 1990 in having procured the services of, uh, of Bill uh, for the Virginia Historical Society. He has been uh, really our most prolific uh, scholar uh, since that time. He, um, for example, uh, worked with me on a book several years ago called The Virginia Landscape, A Cultural History, which was a catalog for an exhibition that we had here at the Society. He also uh, worked with uh, co-author uh, Brian Green and Calder Loth to produce Lost Virginia, Vanished Architecture of the Old Dominion, which is uh, perhaps commercially the most successful of all the books that the Historical Society has published um, ever. Uh, the architecture of Virginia that is gone seems to be a subject of unending fascination. Then beginning in 1995, Bill began a collaboration with uh, a literary historian in, in Connecticut named Robert Tilton. And I have to say their partnership has been about as productive as that of Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, they have produced a number of wonderful exhibits and books uh, ever since. The first of these was Pocahontas, Her Life and Legend in 1995, which they revived and revised last year in a different exhibition of the same title. Uh, then the two of them worked together on George Washington, the man behind the myths back in 1999 for the uh, 200th anniversary of Washington's death. And then they collaborated on a book called Old Virginia, The Pursuit of a Pastoral Ideal which was a very imaginative intellectual history of the concept of Virginia as old Virginia, a phrase that even John Smith used, and uh, how that ideal of an old Virginia had been changed through time. And now most recently, the same two gentlemen have produced for us Lee and Grant. I thought about having the different books here so that you could see that the books continuously get thicker as time goes by as well. Lee and Grant, I think, is the lengthiest of these books. Um, and Bill will be available after the lecture today to autograph books that, of course, you can purchase in the museum's shop. Um, and some of you will know that the uh, Virginia is so fond of having these anniversaries. We've, of course, we're still in the midst of 2007. 2011, some of you will know, will be the 150th anniversary or sesquicentenary of the uh, American Civil War. 
And for that occasion, the society has been asked by the Commonwealth to produce the sort of uh, centerpiece exhibition. And that exhibition will be curated both by uh, Dr. Rasmussen and by our own uh, retiring president and Civil War, resident Civil War historian, Charles Bryan, who will be looking forward to doing some historical rather than administrative work for a change after his retirement. So please welcome today's speaker uh, on Lee and Grant, Dr. William Rasmussen. Thank you. I don't think it would be possible to get through the biographies of, of Lee and of Grant in, in 45 or 50 minutes. But you can find that information in the show upstairs. You can find it in detail in the companion book, Lee and Grant. And we also have an online exhibition, Lee and Grant, where all of that biography is, is available. So I'm going to do something different today. When, when I undertook, undertook this project, there were questions that I, that I wanted to find the, the true answers to. And I assume that you want, want them too. And these are the difficult issues, uh, the issues uh, that we have to deal with before we can really appreciate Lee and Grant. Why, why did Lee become a Confederate? Where did Lee stand on race? Where did Grant stand on race? President Grant has been criticized for abandoning the freedmen to Southern white su suprematists. Um, did he? Uh, was Grant a drunkard? Was President Grant corrupt? His administrations are remembered more for, for their scandals than for their significant achievements. Why did both Grant and Lee allow the slaughter of thousands of their troops? How did public opinion allow that? Seemingly innumerable books have been written about Lee and about Grant, but half the writers say one thing and half say the other. What's the truth? Lee has been attacked a great deal during the past 30 years. He's vulnerable. Adoring writers of the lost cause placed him on a pinnacle because he, he, he aspired to remarkably high standards of duty and honor and self-control and self-denial. And he, and he showed remarkable character as he endured the most trying of circumstances. So even before his death, Lee was respected in the South as, as almost a saint. And as a saint-like figure, he became a symbol of the Old South and of the Confederacy. And as a symbol, he has become in recent decades a lightning rod for attacks against the slaveholding society of the South. Lee is also blamed for the oppressive circumstances faced by many African Americans in the years since the end of the Civil War. Lee was the greatest Confederate, so Lee gets the greatest number of attacks. One question is, how justified are those attacks? As for Grant, a million people, including many from the South, attended his funeral in New York City in, in 1885. But around 1900, just as Lee's national stature began to rise, Grant's reputation started to fall. The slaughter on the Western Front during World War I restored memory of Grant's huge losses while fighting Lee in Virginia. Indiscretions by appointees of President Harding in the 1920s recalled scandals of President Grant's administrations. In 1940, a character in Ernest Hemingway's novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls, says, wasn't Grant supposed to be a drunk a good part of the, of the time during the Civil War? Certainly he was. 
by which writers are we to, are we to believe? Well, well not, the, not the novelists. <laughs> this is a photograph of Lee about 1852. Let's get to the first question. It seems today, at least on the surface, that perhaps Lee made a, a, a reckless, irresponsible decision in joining the secessionists. But when we look closely at the historical record, we may think differently. Lee was vehemently opposed to secession. He didn't want his 30-year career in the US Army to end. He didn't want secession to destroy the nation that so many of his illustrious forebears had worked so hard to establish. Those forebears included his own father, Lighthouse Harry Lee, who was a genuine military hero of the revolution, and George Washington, who was his wife's step-great-grandfather. Martha Washington was, was her great-great-grandmother. Lee's stance uh, in, in, in defense of preserving the Union is well documented. If you look at the bottom of this letter that he wrote in 1857, it says, my mind is fixed, I know no other country, no other government than the, than the United States and their constitution. Three years later in, in November 1860, as the crisis intensified, Lee told his son Custis that the southern states are in a convulsion and that he would lay down his life for the nation's safety if it would do any good. A month later, he wrote to his son Rooney, quote, as an American citizen, I prize the Union very highly and know of no personal sacrifice that I would not make to preserve it save that of honor. Interestingly, Lee would lay down his life but not his honor, as did many southerners beginning in 1861. When South Carolina seceded, Mrs. Lee wrote, quote, this revolution warrants the reprobation of the world, end quote. The Lees hoped, as did most Virginians, that their state would stay loyal to the Union. And in that way, the secessionist movement would falter and die. In January, when several additional southern states seceded, Lee wrote to his cousin, Marky Williams, and to his son, Rooney, essentially the same letter. This is the letter to, to Rooney that's in our collection. And at the top, you, you may be able to read if you're, if you're close to the screen. He writes, I can anticipate no greater calamity for the country than a dissolution of the Union. It would be an accumulation of all the evils we complain of. Secession is nothing but revolution. The framers of our Constitution never exhausted so much labor, wisdom, and forbearance in its formation and surrounded it with so many guards and securities if it was intended to be broken by every member of the Confederacy at will, end quote. February 1861, the next month brought hope. A Virginia convention was called to consider the crisis and voters elected a two-thirds majority of delegates who were opposed to secession. So Lee, who you see here in a painting of about 1855, dressed in his US Army uniform for him, it looked like Virginia would not secede. As late as April 4th, a test vote taken at the Virginia Convention measured the delegates as still opposed to secession by a, by a two to one majority. This was only 13 days before Virginia did secede. So what happened? 
Lincoln decided to send supply ships to Fort Sumter. In turn, Confederate President Jefferson Davis ordered the bombardment of Fort Sumter. On April 14th, the fort surrendered, as the newspapers reported. The next day, April 15th, Lincoln issued a call for 75,000 volunteers, quote, to cause, to cause the laws to be duly executed, end quote. Virginia was expected to provide its share of those troops to invade the Deep South. What he got was not the troops, but, is, but instead Virginia's secession. Lincoln's call for troops changed everything in Virginia. The Virginia Convention went ballistic. Uh, it, it voted, it moved quickly into secret session, and two days later, April 17th, voted to secede. Lee did not know this for a couple of days. In fact, the day that that secret vote was being taken, Lee was invited to two meetings in Washington to be held on the next day, April 18th. The first was at the home of Francis Blair, who was serving as a spokesman for Lincoln. Blair told Lee that he had been authorized by the president to offer him command of Lincoln's proposed army of 75,000 volunteers. The reason? Lee had been the hero of the Mexican War. He was the best soldier in the nation. Command carried the rank of major general. The career advancement that Lee had, had pursued for three long decades would in an instant be fulfilled on a grander scale than the colonel could ever have imagined. Lee, in effect, would succeed the aging Winfield Scott, General-in-Chief of the Army. This was Lee's first decision of 1861, and he declined the offer. Why? He later said that, that he stated to, Bla to Blair, quote, as candidly and as courteously as I could, that though opposed to secession and deprecating war, I could, I could take no part in an invasion of the southern states, end quote. Why? Because you don't fight kinfolk. The states of the Deep South had been settled by many Virginians. This sentiment was widespread in pre-war Virginia. Interestingly, Ulysses Grant's aunt, Rachel Grant Tompkins of Charleston, now West Virginia, wrote to Grant's sister, Clara, in June of 1861, quote, if you can justify your brother Ulysses in drawing his sword against those connected by the ties of blood, you are at liberty to do so, but I cannot, end quote. So some of Grant's kin agreed with Lee that you don't fight kin. For this first decision, Lee has to be admired. He put aside self-interest. He declined career advancement that he wanted desperately. And for the noblest of reasons, he would not lead an invasion of the South. The second meeting on April 18th was with this man, General-in-Chief Winfield Scott. It led Lee to his second decision. Scott told Lee that he must either resign his commission in the U.S. Army or accept whatever duty he was assigned. That duty might be in the South. On the next day, April 19th, Lee learned that Virginia had seceded. That duty might be in Virginia. So on April 20th, Lee resigned his commission. Few today would blame Lee for this second decision. He would take no part in an invasion of the South and certainly not in an invasion of Virginia. Lee still hoped, perhaps naively, that a war wouldn't happen, that rational discussion might avert bloodshed. But after a little thinking, he realized that the war in Virginia actually had already begun because Virginians had immediately attacked the federal arsenal at Harpers Ferry on April 18th, 
the very day Lee was in Washington at his meetings, and they attacked the federal naval yard opposite Norfolk three days later on April 21st. Ulysses Grant said about the Mexican War, the man who obstructs a war actually begun occupies no enviable place. Better for him to advocate war, pestilence, and famine. The war had, had begun because without a doubt Virginia would be invaded in retaliation. There was nothing Lee could do to change those facts. If you live in a region that faces invasion, you have to defend your family and your home. To fail to do so is dishonorable. Or at least that's the way most people have always thought. This is a primal belief. It's found in the poetry of Homer. Tacitus wrote about the Germanic tribes that honorably defended their families and homes from the invading Romans. Traditionally, death was preferable to the dishonor of failing to defend family and home. In Antebellum, Virginia, honor was a cornerstone of social behavior. Most white Southerners felt honor-bound to defend their homeland, and Lee quickly realized that his fellow Virginians would never let him sit idly by while others around fought and died. He was considered the best soldier in the country. His father had been one of the most heroic soldiers of the Revolutionary War. If Lee avoided what most everyone considered to be his duty, he would have had to spend the rest of his life explaining his inaction to deaf ears. He could never have lived happily in post-war Virginia. Lee next was offered command of Virginia's forces. On April 23rd, he traveled to Virginia to accept that command. This was Lee's third decision of 1861, the one for which he is vulnerable today. Two days later, on April 25th, the Virginia Convention approved union of the state with the Confederacy. And in this way, Lee became a Confederate. The majority of Virginians who in 1861 were serving as officers in the U.S. Army made the same decision that Lee did. They became Confederates. Winfield Scott did not, and George Thomas was another who did not. They argued that their duty was to keep their soldiers' oath to the United States. Scott and Thomas were disowned by their families and could never return to post-war Virginia. Southerners, Lee included, weren't willing to die as Confederates in order for a wealthy planter to own slaves. They risked their lives and many died because they recognized a duty and they feared dishonor if they didn't accept that duty. Of this third decision of 1861, Lee said in late April to Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, who asked him, how hard was this decision for you? He said, quote, I don't believe that I had any control over it. When the time came, I could not have done otherwise, end quote. When you put into the historical context of the fast-moving events of that spring, the beliefs of Lee's culture, and the reality of an impending invasion, Lee's explanation for his decision is more convincing than many writers today want to admit. The second question, where did Lee stand on race? Lee never let slavery become much of a part of his life. There were large periods when it played almost no role in his life. Lee was a soldier. He wasn't a planner. He wasn't a politician. He disliked slavery. He distanced himself from it. He would be astounded today to see how close his name is associated with slavery. 
However, Lee was in close contact with black people during certain periods of his life. His mother owned 35 slaves. Late in his, late in his boyhood, when she was ill, he supervised them. A thriving, despicable slave trading operation was centered close to the Lee residence in Alexandria. 60 slaves were at Arlington, where his future wife lived. There, Lee was exposed to some of the worst abuses of the slave system. Illegitimate children were fathered there by whites. Washington Custis, Lee's future father-in-law, was quite possibly the father of some of them. Slave families were separated. When at age 24, Lee inherited several of his mother's slaves, maybe six, he wrote tellingly to his wife, quote, do not trouble yourself about them as they're not worth it, end quote. He either freed or sold a few of them. The records aren't clear. He hired out one to his father-in-law. As late as 1852, he was still hiring out another. During the first two years of the Civil War, Lee kept his, uh, personal, his personal body servants, two slaves, probably taken from the group at Arlington. He freed them at the end of 1862 when he freed all of the Custis slaves, and then he paid those two a modest wage. Lee believed in gradual emancipation, the freeing of the Custis slaves as was directed in his father-in-law's will, was an example of how that po policy worked. Of course, by 1861, gradual emancipation was too little too late. Lee's most famous statement about slavery is in a letter that's in our collection here, written to his wife in December of 1856. If you look down the third line from the top, he says that, quote, it is a moral and political evil in any country. A little bit further down toward the middle of what you're looking at, he said, the blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa, morally, socially, and physically. And he tried to make himself believe that that was true. In 1857, George Washington Park Custis died at Arlington. Lee was forced to return from army duty in Texas to serve as an executor of his father-in-law's estate. And here is where his problems with slavery really began. Arlington was certainly not an Eden, as is suggested in this image. It's an 1853 article in Harper's. The slaves there showed signs of unrest even before Custis died. His will promised bequest of $10,000 to each of four granddaughters with money that would have to be raised by the farm labor of his slaves. When those legacies were paid, the slaves were to, were to be emancipated all within a period quote, not exceeding five years, end quote. The slaves thought that Custis had granted them their freedom. Lee demanded of them as he demanded of the soldiers under his command and as he demanded of himself that they work hard in the fields and that they do what he, what he saw as their duty, that they follow orders. This was a soldier who for decades stood waist deep in mud and stifling heat as he built forts in the U.S. Army. Almost immediately, Lee hired out a dozen slaves as the best way to earn the needed, the needed cash. Some of that gr group and others ran away. In the spring of 1859, three slaves got as far as Westminster, Maryland, before they were brought back, whipped, and then hired out. The whipping, which is well documented, immediately attracted national attention. The New York Daily Tribune published two critical letters that it received, letters that exaggerated the facts. You're looking at one of them now. 
Uh, Lee didn't do, certainly didn't do the whipping himself. No one has ever believed that that part was true that's mentioned in this letter. Virginia law stipulated that it was the duty of a master to subject a runaway to a brutal whipping. And Lee was never one to shirk from his duty. On court-martial duty, he had participated in, in awarding worse punishment than that. Lee later stated, quote, no servant, soldier, or citizen that was ever employed by me can with truth charge me with bad treatment, end quote. He, didn't, he apparently didn't think that the whipping constituted bad treatment. When the Union soldier and artist Robert Sneeden visited Arlington during the Civil War, and he sketched some of the slaves, as you see here, they told, they told him that Lee had been a hard taskmaster. All the while, Lee was spending large sums for the slaves, for their clothing, for their food, and for their medical care. He wrote on one occasion, quote, I wish to make them as comfortable as I can, end quote. In 1860, when a new overseer was needed at Arlington, Lee made another telling statement. He wanted an overseer who would be, quote, an energetic, honest farmer who, while he will be considerate and kind to the Negroes, will be firm and make them do their duty. Do their duty was a phrase that, that governed Lee's life. This is a deed of emancipation that freed the Custis slaves. It's in Lee's handwriting. It's in the exhibition upstairs. In December 1862, when he had freed the, the 180 slaves, there were two other Custis plantations as well. It was the end of the five-year deadline. The court ruled that that's what he was supposed to do. But he wrote to his wife, quote, they are entitled to their freedom, and I wish to give it to them, end quote. Those slaves had done their duty, as Lee saw it. Lee's emancipation of the Arlington slaves took place only a couple of days before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. It was an act that enraged Lee because he wanted the South to use emancipation as a political weapon to influence the course of the war. According to Lee's own later statement, he said, I, I told Davis, Confederate President Jefferson Davis, often and early in the war that the slaves should be emancipated, that it was the only way to remove a weakness at home and get sympathy abroad and to divide our enemies, but Mr. Davis would not hear of it, end quote. Lee wanted, quote, the use of the Negroes as soldiers, end quote. As the war drew to a close in early 1865, Lee favored, quote, giving immediate freedom to all slaves who enlist, end quote. He mentioned also bounties, money, or land to attract black men into the Southern service. A clerk in the Confederate War Department, J.B. Jones, wrote in his diary in January of 1865, quote, if it were generally known that General Lee is and always has been opposed to slavery, how soon would his great popularity vanish like the mist of the morning, end quote. Lee, the man who today is criticized for supporting slavery, was in fact opposed to it, not for humanitarian reasons as today we wish he had been, and mainly because slavery didn't work well, but he was opposed to it. Lee didn't want to perpetuate slavery. It was the Confederacy that wanted to perpetuate slavery. After the war, Lee was ready to accept emancipation with minimal flinching. 
and to move on to the new order. He encouraged Southerners to support the new order. But like most other white Americans, including Ulysses Grant, and even most black people at the time, he never imagined that racial equality would follow the abolition of slavery. In 1866, the Reconstruction Committee of the United States Congress summoned Lee to one of its hearings, in part to humble him. Some of his responses to the questions that he was, was asked were racist remarks, typical for the era. He said of the freed people, quote, I think it would be better for Virginia if she could get rid of them. This is no new opinion with me. I've always thought so, and have always been in favor of emancipation, gradual emancipation, end quote. The second part, gradual emancipation, is no surprise to us. The, the first part is, what did he mean, get rid of them? The law in Antebellum, Virginia, had stipulated that freed slaves had to move out of the state. So white Southerners like Lee were inclined to think of emancipation and emigration of blacks, blacks together. They thought that the two races could never live together. So did Abraham Lincoln think this. He believed that both races would benefit if the black population was colonized elsewhere. He envisioned the unsettled Western lands as, as reserved for white settlers only. So did Ulysses Grant think this. When president, he tried to buy the island of Santo Domingo as a refuge for the black population because he saw little hope for integration. When asked about the freedmen and the right to vote, Lee responded to the Congressional Committee, quote, my own opinion is that at this time, they cannot vote intelligently. What the future may prove, how intelligent they may become, I cannot say any more than you can, end quote. That was actually a more enlightened statement, sadly, than one Lincoln made. Lee saw Africa, that African Americans might improve themselves. Lincoln wrote, quote, there is a physical difference between the white and black races which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality, end quote. Lee did make a few non-racist statements to the committee. For example, he said, quote, everyone with whom I associate expresses kind feelings toward the freedmen, end quote. During the post-war era, Lee advocated education for everyone in the post-war South, blacks included. He stayed clear of Ku Klux Klan activity. He had nothing to do with the Klan and set an example by his inaction. He wanted to maintain the old order with whites at the top and all others far below, but so did almost all whites of the era. Where did Grant stand on race? As with Lee, slavery touched Grant long before the Civil War. He knew it intimately from the time he was married because his wife owned four slaves whom her father had given her. They helped with the household duties. Just like Lee, Grant farmed in the late 1850s with slave labor, and he was no more successful at it. In 1854, he had quit the army and rejoined his wife and sons outside of St. Louis, and he, and he tried his hand at farming here at Whitehaven, the plantation of his in-laws. In 1858, he purchased a slave name was William Jones, and he rented perhaps a dozen more slaves. But even with the help of slaves, he failed to turn a profit. And in 1859, though he was living close to poverty, he was destitute, Grant freed William Jones. We have in the exhibition a copy of that, of that document. He could easily have hired out this slave to earn much needed income. 
1861, as with Lee, slavery played no part in Grant's decision making. Slavery was the cause of the war, and Grant said so in his memoirs, but in 1861, he re-enlisted in the U.S. Army not to free slaves, but to oppose secession. 1863, he wrote this letter to his congressman, I never was an abolitionist, he admitted with, with typical honesty, uh, not even what could be called anti-slavery. However, midway into the war, in 1863, when General Grant moved his army into Confederate territory and, and encountered thousands of black refugees seeking freedom, he worried, what, what is going to become of these poor people? This is a photograph taken in Virginia of fugitive slaves uh, fleeing to freedom behind the Union lines. But this sort of thing was going on with Grant's army in Tennessee and Mississippi. And it was at this point that he reversed his stance on slavery. Grant concluded that the nation could not survive with it. And after the war, Grant saw Lincoln's awarding of justice to black Americans as a legacy that had to be honored and perpetuated. As general of the army, Grant determined when and where to position troops, some of whom saved the lives of freed people. As president, Grant did even more. He endorsed the right of suffrage for all citizens and asked for an amendment. And when the 15th Amendment was passed, Grant said it was, quote, of grander importance than any other one act of the kind from the foundation of the war, from the, founda from the foundation of our free government to the present day, end quote. The, Fred the, the black leader, Frederick Douglass, acknowledged, quote, to Grant more than any other man the Negro owes his enfranchisement, end quote. Grant asked for power to stop the violence of the Ku Klux Klan. He wrote in 1871, quote, there is no other subject on which I would recommend legislation during the current session, end quote. The Ku Klux Klan Act allowed him to use the army to enforce the law and to prosecute, prosecute criminal violence in federal courts. Within the year, the Grant administration secured 3,000 indictments, thereby dramatically reducing the bloodshed. In his second inaugural address, if you look toward the bottom of this image, Grant complained that the former slave, quote, is not possessed of the civil rights which citizenship should carry with it. This is wrong and should be corrected, end quote. The violence continued and culminated in massacres of black people in the Deep South. This cannot be permitted, Grant told the Senate time and again. When blacks were murdered in, in Hamburg, South Carolina in 1876, Grant offered encouragement to the governor of that state with a statement that was made famous by the cartoonist Thomas Nast, which you see here. Grant said, quote, go on and let every governor where the same dangers threaten the peace of his state, go on in the conscientious discharge of his, of his duties and I will give every aid for which I can find law or constitutional power. End quote. Some writers say that Grant abandoned the freedman, but in fact, Grant's commitment to the freedman actually grew stronger as the Southern challenge to the freedman intensified. He dug in. To fail would be to betray both the Union soldiers who had died and the dead President Lincoln. Just how hard Grant labored to win for African Americans their civil rights is best judged by the fact that 90 years would pass before another president would resume the struggle. Next question, was Grant a drunkard? 
1852, Grant was transferred to duty in the Pacific Northwest. His pregnant wife and young son, Frederick, could not accompany them. Later, he could not afford to pay their passage. He began to miss his family more and more. He re wrote repeatedly to his wife with lines like this, I feel as if I've been separated from you and Fred long enough, and as to, as to Ulysses, his second child, I've never seen him. He asked Julia to send him a photograph. It's undoubtedly this, this image. Ulysses is the one, young Ulysses is the one in the middle. At this low point, Grant seems to have taken to serious drinking. According to a friend who served with him in the West, Lieutenant Henry Hodges, Grant, quote, would perhaps go on two or three sprees a year, but was always open to reason. When spoken to on the subject, would own up and promise to stop drinking, which he did, end quote. Future General George McClellan encountered Grant on the West's coast on at least one occasion when he was disgusted to find Grant drinking. Hodges said that Grant quit the army because one day he appeared for duty at the pay table intoxicated. The commanding officer, Robert Buchanan, said Grant could either stand trial or resign. Grant resigned. He rejoined his young family outside of St. Louis. The perception that Grant was a drunkard apparently hindered his return to the army in 1861. One of his fellow officers at that point, Augustus Chetman, said of Grant, said that Grant worried that he might turn to to drink in frustration. Quote, this is the key to Grant's drinking habits. Whenever he was idle and depressed, this appetite came upon him. End quote. When Grant, when General Grant brought the, the Union its first major victory at, at, at Fort Donelson in 1862, and his career suddenly advanced, accusations of drunkenness were raised by jealous rivals. Six weeks later, after his victory at Shiloh at Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee, northern newspapers attacked Grant for both drinking and excessive ambition. Lincoln dismissed the complaints. He fights, the president stated. During the bleak winter of 1862 to 63, before Grant was successful at Vicksburg, stories again surfaced about binge drinking on occasion when his wife, uh, Julia, was absent. Assistant Secretary of War Charles Dana was sent to keep an eye on the, on the general. Dana saw no alcoholic, but instead, quote, the most modest, the most disinterested, and most honest man, end quote, he ever knew. At Chattanooga, Grant's the figure in the left corner, in the fall of 1863, Major General David Hunter observed Grant and left an account that debunked the rumors about alcoholism, quote, he is a hard worker, writes his own dispatches and orders, does his own thinking. He's modest, quiet, never swears, and seldom drinks." End quote. That's probably the truth of it, seldom drinks. This is the scant evidence regarding Grant's problem with alcohol. In his 30s, he apparently took to serious drinking on several occasions when he was depressed at being separated for long periods from his family. There's no evidence that President Grant drank excessively. Next question, was President Grant corrupt? This is a cartoon by Thomas Nast entitled, This Tub Has No Bottom to, st to Stand On. It refers to the scandals of the Grant administrations. As president, Grant had an inclination to reward friends and acquaintances with important political appointments and then to place blind and irre irrevocable trust in their integrity. 
and that, and that practice led to disaster. I'll review a couple of the scandals. First, uh, Black Friday. The Civil War it cost a lot of money. It weakened the dollar. To bolster it, Grant's Treasury Secretary, George Bootwills, set about using gold to buy back greenbacks at weekly auctions. The price of gold dropped in proportion to the amount of gold that the government issued. Jay Gould, this man, and this character, Jim Fisk, deduced that if they could determine beforehand the government's schedule for the sale of gold, they could make an outrageous profit. If they used insider information, they could buy low and sell high. They garnered the assistance of Grant's brother-in-law, Abel Corbett. Grant was oblivious. When he figured it out, however, he acted decisively. On Black Friday, September 24th, 1869, Grant ordered Bootwell to sell gold, quote, to save the country from a panic, end quote. Grant, President Grant had acted stupidly to allow his brother-in-law to dupe him, but not dishonestly, and in the end, he did act admirably. Second scandal, the back pay grab. On its final day in session in 1873, the 42nd Congress voted to increase the salaries of its members and of the president and vice president, and Congress additionally awarded itself retroactively two years of salary. <laughs> this so-called back pay grab was, was inserted into a major appropriation bill that kept the machinery of government in motion for the coming fiscal year. The New York Times complained of, quote, rascality so shameless, so despicable, and so conspicuous, end quote. Grant should have called a special, special session of Congress to rewrite the bill, or at least he should have ref refused his own raise in back pay, but he didn't. Again, he acted stupidly, though not dishonestly. The next, next one, the Credit Mobilier. This was a dummy corporation set up by the directors of the Union Pacific Railroad as a means to steal money from that company's treasury. Members of Congress were given shares of its stock to keep them quiet. This all happened before Grant ever took office, but the scandal fell on, it, on his doorstep when it broke in 1872. Grant typically supported his subordinate, this time Schuyler Colfax, who then was Grant's vice president. He was implicated along with a dozen others. In the end, the, the evidence against Colfax was inconclusive, but by not establishing a personal reputation for impeccable honesty, as Lee in fact did, Grant was damaged in instances like this where he had done absolutely nothing wrong. The next year, 1874, Grant was shaken by the Sanborn contracts. This is John Sanborn, um, a corrupt congressman, Benjamin Butler, awarded to John Sanborn a lucrative conduct to collect back taxes from businesses and keep half the money himself. Grant's treasury secretary at the time, William Richardson, allowed it. He signed the contract and directed revenue agents not to pursue delinquent accounts that Sanborn eyed. The New York Times called the scandal, quote, discouraging and disgusting, end quote. Grant was urged by the press to demand the resignation of Richardson, but he foolishly refused. Richardson eventually resigned on his own but the damage to Grant's reputation had been done. The next scandal, the next year, 
was the whiskey ring. It involved the, the next Treasury Secretary, Benjamin Bristow, who you see here. He, he, was, he was a good man. Um, he raided uh, revenue offices and distilleries in the Midwest and, and uncovered whiskey rings made up of dishonest businessmen and corrupt revenue agents who were evading the taxes due on whiskey. One of those indicted in the St. Louis district, former Union General John McDonald, was a friend of Grant's personal secretary. There's the secretary, Orville ba Babcock. And so Babcock appeared guilty by association. The little evidence available was circumstantial. Grant firmly believed that Babcock was innocent, and so he pulled strings to free Babcock. He gave a deposition that was read at Babcock's trial and was enough to win his secretary's acquittal. But in addition, Grant directed his attorney general to dissuade prose the prosecutors. He removed one St. Louis prosecutor. He had a friend serving on the grand jury and gave a consulship to the son of that friend. And when whiskey ring uh, conspirators were convicted, Grant pardoned several of them. He convinced himself that he, Grant, was the victim of persecution by Treasury Secretary Bristow, that Bristow held presidential aspirations. Grant's interference in Bristow's attempts to prosecute was, at, at the least, unwise and unethical. The next year, the last of these, in 1876, uh, the greed of the wife of this man, this is Grant's Secretary of War, William Belknap, it brought about an even worse incident, the so-called Indian trading scandal. Trade at military posts in the West yielded lucrative commissions. Control of this trade was awarded by contract through the War Department. Carrie Belknap, this man's wife, managed to direct the contract to trade at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, to a New York acquaintance, Caleb Marsh, current holder of the post, a man named John Evans, didn't want to relinquish it, his post. And so he, he paid uh, off Marsh and Mrs. Belknap to be allowed to keep his position. In a few months, she died unexpectedly, and the payments continued to her widower, to this man, the secretary. As the story was just breaking, he resigned, and Grant, not really aware of what was going on, unwisely accepted the resignation, so Congress was unable to prosecute Belknap. The New York Times labeled the incident a national disgrace and stated, quote, it is, the, it is part of the duty of the president to take care that he surrounds himself with men by whom the laws are respected, end quote. He'd surrounded himself with a strange cast of characters, as we've seen. Through all of these scandals, Grant technically did not break the law, but he certainly stretched it. In 1876, the New York Times accurately assessed what was simply a weakness in Grant as president. Quote, blind, unquestioning confidence in one's friends may be accounted a virtue in private life, but it is nearly allied to a grievous fault in public station, end quote. The scandals were a black mark on Grant's presidencies. President Grant did very well in, in other areas, in the area of human rights, advancing the the condition of the freedman and also of the Native American. He did very well in foreign affairs. But those accomplishments are generally forgotten and the scandals are remembered. My last question, why were Grant and Lee willing to sacrifice 
so many of their soldiers in battle. If we apply today's standards to the 1860s, as we like to do, if we apply them to the subject of casualties in combat, Grant and Lee are extremely vulnerable. More than 100 times as many men were, were lost in the Civil War as, as have been lost in the current war in Iraq. In May and June of 1864 alone, when Grant and Lee went head to head in Virginia, Grant lost 65,000 men and Lee 35,000 men. Wounded soldiers were burned to death in the wilderness. The dead piled up eight to 10 deep in places at Spotsylvania. At Cold Harbor, Union soldiers wrote their names on their uniforms so that their corpses could be readily identified. Why is this slaughter not criticized more today? It was at the time in the North. One of Grant's advisors warned two months after Cold Harbor of possible draft riots in New York, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Kentucky. Grant was asked to send troops from the front to those areas. He refused, and Lincoln backed him up, writing to him, quote, neither am I willing, hold on with a bulldog grip and chew and choke as much as possible, end quote. Both Grant and Lee set out to ob obliterate the opposing army and their civilian bosses encouraged them. These were the same politicians who got them into the war in the first place. In the process of trying to obliterate their, the opposing army, they raised warfare to a new horrifying level. Human, human life was less valued in the 1860s. Since then, we have evolved some as a civilized people. Grant and Lee were educated to believe that the safety of any individual soldier was secondary to the good of the whole. The men of the lower classes who made up the great majority of the fighting force were expendable if a military objective could be achieved. When Grant was promoted in 1864 to Lieutenant General and given command of all the Union armies, he responded, quote, I feel the full weight of the responsibilities now devolving on me, end quote. Lee felt the same. Each general could not afford to fail. His honor was at stake. The survival of his nation was at stake. And so neither general had many qualms about sacrificing thousands in his ranks and slaughtering thousands of the enemy. Later in his memoirs, Grant tried to defend himself for the slaughter in Virginia. There would be, quote, heavier losses to both armies, but the carnage was, be, was to be limited to a single year, end quote. Therefore, the total number of losses would be less than if the war was allowed to drag on for several years or for a decade. Lee had reached the same conclusion. And beginning in the spring of 1862, he looked to win one great battle that would simply end the war and the dying. And he was willing to sacrifice huge losses, 20,000 at the Seven Days Battles, 28,000 at Gettysburg, to win that one battle. Grant added in his memoirs, quote, do not forget what it cost Lee, end quote but people did forget Lee's numbers, partly because Lee was defending against an invasion and partly because Southerners wanted their soldiers to fight aggressively. At first, Lee did not listen to Southern public opinion. He tried in his first campaign to avoid bloodshed. It didn't work. He left Western Virginia in Union hands. Soon the people there voted to establish a new and separate state of West Virginia. For that failure, Lee was unmercifully attacked in the Southern newspapers as Granny Lee. The hero of the Mexican War, they, they said, no longer wants to fight. They wrote of Lee's, quote, excess of caution and his, quote, extreme tenderness of blood. Lee was not aggressive, they complained. Well, Lee changed. 
became extremely aggressive from 1862 on. And he would refer to, quote, the feverish and excited expectation of our good people. And he answered that expectation. When Lee knew that he no longer had the numbers to win the war, sometime in the midst of his clash with, with Grant, probably after Grant crossed the James River and laid siege to Petersburg, why did he keep fighting? The answer goes back to public opinion in the South. When Lee was given command of Virginia's forces in April of 1861, the president of the Virginia Secession Convention, John Janney, charged Lee to fight to the death in defense of his homeland. And this directive must have been remembered. He said, quote, Yesterday, your mother Virginia placed her sword in your hand upon the implied condition that you will fall with it in your hand rather than that the object of which it was placed there shall fail, end quote. Fight to the death, Lee was told. After Appomattox, Lee admitted that he worried, quote, about the, the men who were lost after I knew it was too late, end quote. But he kept his troops in the field even though his army's defeat was inevitable. And so we're back to the concept of honor. It would have been dishonorable to surrender, except as the Confederacy's dying gasp. Lee's aggressive campaigns had been costly. In the five years of the war, he probably lost close to the same number of men as Grant did, maybe more, somewhere around 150,000 each. We hear about Grant's losses. We don't hear about Lee's. Well, by talking about these controversial subjects of decision-making, race, drunkenness, scandals, casualty rates, which need to be cleared up if we're going to get a clear picture of Lee and Grant, I've, I've left no time to talk about the virtues of, of, of Lee and of Grant, and there were many virtues. Uh, they're cited uh, at length in the show and, and, and in the book, and so I ask that you rediscover those virtues there. And you'll find that my co-curator and co-author and I, in comparing the two generals, um, we in no way degraded either general. And we came to the conclusion that both Lee and Grant, that they both were great Americans. We all wish today that both generals had not held racist views, that both had not lost so many soldiers, that in the White House, Grant had set a higher standard of personal honor but it would probably be unrealistic to expect anything different because these men were products of their time. I'm gonna stop at this point and I wanna give what little time remains uh, to those other questions that I didn't answer. Thank you. Yes. I have heard somewhere that the federal government in the final stages of the war between the states offered to give compensation to the owners of slaves or negroes as they're called in that way. What what is that racist in that? I haven't come across that. I don't know whether that's oh, I'm sorry. The um the question was that that you had heard that, that the federal government at the end of the war had offered to pay compensation to the slave owners for their for their slaves. I, I haven't come across that myself. I know that Lee was pressing very hard um, in, in 1865, in those few remaining months of the Confederacy, um, to, 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 to have the, the slaves freed, to enlist them um, in his army, 
to reward those slaves who did serve in the army with, with, with land, with salary, and so on. Um, so that's all I can, I can say on that one. That's all I know on that subject. Yes. The question was that people today say Robert E. Lee was, was a traitor, and how do you respond to that? Um, I, I have demonstrated that I don't, know how to, I don't know how you do it other than giving a 15-minute answer. <laughs> uh, but it's a much more complicated subject. It, it, you know, it's very simple. A lot of people want to say that Lee um, joined the Confederacy, and the Confederacy was established to perpetuate slavery. Therefore, Lee fought to perpetuate slavery. And it's just not that simple. It's much more complicated. There are m many other facts. And, I, I, and I, maybe the simplest way to explain it is that um, people living in, in white people, li white men living in Virginia in 1861, most of them felt that they didn't have any choice in the, on the issue. They were being called to defend their homeland from an invasion. Um, and if they didn't do that, um, their fellow citizens uh, would never let them forget that. That's one angle I think you could use in, in approach. <laughs> Do that. Yes, sir. The question was how many black people actually ma made it into Lee's, Lee's army, and I don't have a, a figure on that, but I think that's one of the subjects that we're going to be looking into as we prepare for the exhibition that Jim Kelly mentioned at the very beginning um, in 2011 when we look at the Civil War in depth and we look at all both the home front as well as the as the as the um, as the battlefront. Um, Lee got absolutely nowhere in his requests in January of 1865 for freeing the slaves and for getting and, and for in inducing some of those slaves into, into his army. He he made visits to Richmond to talk to the legislature, and no one would listen to him. That that was just they would have nothing to do with to do with that. So uh, th there were we know from studies like the the. Um, Wilson Green's study on Petersburg, that there were slaves in, in the Petersburg area who on their own volunteered to serve the Confederacy and went off and dug trenches um, in the tidewater. So there are a number of black people serving in that capacity, but I think you were asking me about how many actually served in the Army, as, as many did in the Union Army in, in black units. Yes. The, the question was, did Lee and Grant see each other or correspond after Appomattox? And we, we go into this at some length in the, in the book and, and, and in the show. Um, Grant, uh, one reason Grant was popular in the South at, by the time that he died was because the word got out that he defended Lee and other Confederates whom he paroled at Appomattox. And there were efforts to prosecute them. Judge Underwood in Norfolk attempted to prosecute Lee for treason, calling him a traitor. Um, and Grant um, held firm. He said, um, you know, I, I, I had the right to, to parole them um, as the commanding officer. I was given this right by, by Lincoln. They wouldn't have surrendered if I hadn't promised them parole. And I am 
I, I won't stand for it. I will, I will step down as general in, of the army if this happens. And Grant's popularity was so strong at this point in the North that Andrew Johnson couldn't fight him on this. And Grant dug in and he, and he won that point. So he certainly had that contact. Lee, when Lee uh, signed his, um, an, an oath of amnesty, and he, he sought a pardon. He wrote to Grant and asked him, Can, am I eligible to do this? And Grant wrote him back, and we have a facsimile in the exhibition upstairs of his amnesty oath and of Grant's letter back to Lee, where Grant says, I've forwarded uh, your application on to the, the president. Um, and you, you may know the story that it got lost and didn't surface again for 110 years, and Gerald Ford was the one who signed, the, who granted Lee his, his pardon in 1975. They met one time um, after the war in 1869 at the White House. Um, Lee had been in, in Baltimore trying to get the railroad to come to Lexington. He was passing through Washington. Grant heard that he was in town and invited him. They spent 15 minutes together. Uh, the newspapers couldn't write it up too much because it was a private meeting and they don't know uh, much about what happened there. Uh, but apparently they both felt that it was important to put, to, to, to put up this, this, this front so that the rest of the nation could see that they were behaving civilly, with civility to one another. Um, we have up in the stairs one of the, one, of the, the one of the electronic units, one of the video units, a quote that, that Lee made to one of the professors at Washington College where he said, if, sir, if you ever speak disparagingly about General Grant in my presence again, one of, one of us will leave this university. Any, anyone else? In the back. I can't even see in the back. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry, I heard part of that, but I didn't hear all of it. I don't know the exact figure. The question was how much of the Arlington property was awarded to the to the emanci to the emancipated slaves, uh, and we saw in that drawing by S the watercolor by Steeden that I showed you some of the what they called the contraband camp at Arlington. They set up a huge contraband camp there, which is one way to insult Lee, as was turning Arlington into a cemetery was was the other. Um, so I don't know the exact um, number of acres given to the slaves. Um, obviously, the more important act was the granting of acreage to the cemetery because it's now taken the whole property of Arlington. I don't know if you, if you heard that. I, 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 I editorialized a lot when I said, a bit when I said, we have perhaps come a bit more civilized today and that we, we, are, um, we don't tolerate the, the loss of life today. I'm talking about we, the people today in the United States. Um, certainly not true of the whole 20th century since five million people were killed in World War One, and, and, and a huge number in World War Two. Yes.
Right. Well, the, the, the question had to do with the settlement to the Lee family for Arlington for the loss of Arlington. It was eventually, um, restitution was eventually made to the Lee family. Uh, Mrs. Lee had applied initially and got nowhere, since, so some time had to pass, a couple of decades. Eventually restitution was, was awarded, but they, as you said, they, there's nothing they could do about it. The cemetery was already there, and so the Lee family accepted the money. She custodially received several hundred thousand dollars for it, but the estate was gone. It was a large, large sum of money. I think we should. We've. I think we better stop at this point. I've kept you way too long. Um, I'm thank you, and I hope you'll go up and enjoy the exhibition. And if you're interested in the book, there.